Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm number 5. Psalm 5. Psalm number 5. As we continue our series on loving the Psalms. Loving the Psalms. And in this series, again, this, the purpose of this is as we, as a church, we sing the Psalms. May we do so not just with our lips. But may we do so with our minds and our understanding as well, and so doing with our hearts. There there are many parts of the Psalms, even when I'm going through myself and studying through the parts of the Psalms, I go, oh, that's what it means. And it's such a blessing to know what we're singing and to be blessed by what we are singing. Because when we're singing, we're addressing God. We're addressing the one whom we're talking to. And so it is with our prayers. I say prayers because... In a lot of ways, this psalm is very much a prayer and will teach us about prayer. This is why the title for this evening's message is Godly Prayer. Godly Prayer, which is why we read as well from Luke chapter 11 earlier. And as with our our psalm singing, it's aimed toward God, so is it with our prayer. In a lot of ways, this is a sung prayer, a sung prayer. But we ought not to come without the mind as we come to this psalm and as we address before God. There's a lot of ways in which this prayer here and even our own prayers, if they're godly before God, teach. They really teach and instruct those around. There's a sense if, say, somebody was coming into our prayer meetings in the middle of the week and overheard our most intimate prayers before God. What would it do? It would teach them, wouldn't it, in a way? It would teach the people, eavesdropping, if you will, what we think of our God and who he means to us, his people. Would to us that this would instruct our hearts, that this most intimate conversation of David toward God would instruct us of who God is. So for godly prayer, we must know things about God, surely. Um, And the thing is, if we don't know much about God, our prayer is going to be shallow. But the more we know about God, from the heart now, from the heart, not in an external way, not just purely for having things in our mind, may it deepen our understanding, may it deepen our prayer life, may it make us seek to have a deeper relationship with him. Because if our if our prayer life is shallow, it can be because we do not wish to know much more about God. Our thoughts about God will be shallow and so will our prayer life toward God be shallow. Our God is so amazing, wouldn't we want to know more about him and to pray more earnestly toward him? This psalm, I pray by God's grace, will help us all in our prayer life to pray godly prayers. So let's look at godly prayers. We look at Psalm number five. Let us hear God's holy and his infallible word. At the beginning it says, to the chief musician with flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my king and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you will hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. 
For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. For they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and his infallible word. What we think of someone will, or even something, will shape how we speak about it, how we describe it to others. If we respect somebody in terms of position or power and authority, it will shape how we speak. We'll be, if we're speaking before authority, we, we will often be far more careful in what we say. The more highly we think of that person, we will be careful in how we address them. And we'll be careful how we speak about them to others. How highly do we think of God? How careful are we when we speak to God? Not just how we speak about God to other people, but how careful are we when we speak before God, when we address the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords with this great opportunity that we have, this great privilege to address the King of Kings. We must learn this, that we are to think highly of him, because otherwise, and it's a, it's a trend today, People come casually before God. People come with terms that are very familiar and treat God just like he's our our buddy. And we must not come before God in such a way because he is not like us. He is not a creature. He is not a creature. We must not come casually before the God of heaven. And this psalm really teaches us about that. We are not to come casually before him. In this psalm is both something to be sung with the the mind, the heart, but also the mouth. It teaches about prayer, godly prayer. Here, we see another example, given by by Christ in other parts of the Bible, how we are to pray. So as we're going to go through this, this, we're going to be looking at it in three parts. And how we are to pray in a way honoring to God, how we face times of trouble, which is normal in a fallen world. That our prayers would truly be heard. You see, we don't want to go casually thinking, well, it doesn't matter if our prayers are heard. We, we want to come earnestly. We want to come pleading with God because we 
we see that there's help in God, but there's no help anywhere else but besides him. So we cry out to him. So we're going to look at this psalm. We're going to look at it under three headings. And the first heading is this, adoration. Adoration. Our petitions, our pleas, our cries from the heart must address not just somebody we think is powerful, but someone we adore, someone we exalt, someone we think highly of, uh, the one worthy of all praise, all the honor, and all the glory. And if he is such a God as is worthy of all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory, surely we cannot come to him in a casual, flippant way. Look at, look at what the psalmist writes a psalm of David. So David writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Verse 2. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. And who is that David, and David was a king, we don't exactly know which part of David's life he was writing this in, whether it was before he was a king or during his time as king, but we know that David became a king, and this king said to the greater king, David, my king and my God, verse 2, my king and my God. So already he's exalting God in, his, in the way he's coming before him. The king comes before the king of kings. Recognizing God as our king is vitally important. If he's your king, do you listen to him? I think we struggle with the idea of kingly authority. But in the ancient world... You either, depending on the king and depending on the country, if you went against the king, that would be treason. To go against the king was to seek to reject his authority, depending on the time you lived in. But do you obey him? Do you follow him? Do you listen to his voice? And what we're, to, what we're learning about here this evening is not just information to fill our minds. We're filling our hearts that we would wish to follow him. It's not to come and just learn information that would impress others. But we wish to be imitators of God. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Or therefore be followers of God. If he is our king then we do wish to follow him where he would command us that we would go. I don't know if I saw a newspaper article there recently. There's some protesters, King Charles III being recently coronated, and a number of people say, not my king. I think it reflects our modern uh, society very much, referring to rejecting King Charles as their king. Now, regardless of whether they say he's a king or not, he is their king. He he can't really change that. As imperfect as he is, still the king. But do they wish to obey him? Not at all. Not at all. He is their king. That does not change. 
But rightfully, they will never wish to obey him unless they embrace him and say, hey, he is my king. Is Christ your king? Even if you're in unbelief and you say in your heart, like a lot of these protesters, not my king. Doesn't dethrone him at all. Sure, we'll try to dethrone him in our hearts in unbelief, but it doesn't dethrone him. He still remains the king, but unless we embrace him by faith, we'll never want to obey him. We'll never want to follow him, and we'll never want to trust him. Until you've embraced him by faith. Until you've adored him and exalted him in approaching him. Until then and until you've trusted him. You will reject his rightful rule. He rules over every blade of grass. Every dust particle. Every, every star. Every moon. Every part of the universe. He says mine. However. Until you've trusted in him. You will not follow him. And the thing is, when a person is on unbelief and they say, not my king, they also say blasphemously, not my God. So it's important what the psalmist is writing here, as we approach before God, we, we take hold of him. We embrace him as my king and my God. Or we embrace him as the one, what you command, we do. What you command, we do. We as loyal subjects to the king, we petition. We petition. We swear, you could say, an oath of allegiance to Christ. Not as, not as rebels against his law, but we come asking for his help as loyal subjects, seeking his statutes and loving them. That's godly prayer. That is godly prayer. Where we have fallen short, we ask for forgiveness. But that is godly prayer. One who wishes not only for God to hear you, but also that you are willing to hear God. You see, the godly prayer comes asking for the ear of God, but we're also in turn, we've been changed, and we ourselves are hearing God. And that means obeying Him. Now we'll do that imperfectly, of course. We sin in thought and word and deed. But God hears the voice of those He loves. And those whom he loves, he has changed. And those whom he's changed are in Christ Jesus. And those who are in Christ Jesus are those who follow him. He has set his love upon us so that we look to him in adoration, not in complacency, not in kind of a casualness. We love him. We love him. And those are the prayers that are answered when they come seeking him whom they love for help in adoration. We want him not only to hear our words, but also to hear, just see what he says in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord, but not just that. Consider my meditation, it says. And this word literally is my, my groaning, my innermost, almost my innermost thoughts, my worries. The things I can't quite put into words. The things that I'm struggling to get out. The things that are so buried in the pit of my heart and you can't, you struggle to find the words. The psalmist is asking God not just to consider the words he's able to get out of his mouth, but also to consider what his innermost thoughts. God hears all those things. Nothing is hidden from him. 
He knows our thoughts. He knows our groanings. There's no hiding from God, as we said this morning. He knows what goes on in our hearts. We were looking at this morning in the sermon that if you could put up on a, on a, on a projector your thoughts, maybe even for your best day, and you play it before your best friend, you'd probably run out of the room in embarrassment because we think things so horrendous at times. Our thoughts are not hidden before God. And the psalmist realized this. The psalmist is like, there's no hiding. Consider all that I am. Consider all. God knows it all. God knows it all. So that when we come before God, he knows our groanings. He knows our innermost thoughts. He knows us better, much better than we know ourselves. He knows about what is right and what is wrong for us. He knows infinitely more of what is good for us. That's the amazing thing as well. Us seeking God is actually us seeking what is, yes, to exalt God first and foremost, but that is in and of itself also what is best for us. We're considering how wonderful he is in and of himself. And he said, God said to Moses in, in Exodus 3, 14, I am whom I am. He is the self-existent one. He is the one who depends on none else. He is the one who is the source of good, the source of truth. And he is that one who's been revealed in the scriptures. Verse 4 in our text. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Nor shall evil dwell with you. This is still adoration. This is still exalting him. This is still speaking highly of him. Because what we're doing is here saying, you are whom you are. And here's who you are. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Nor shall evil dwell with you. This is saying good things about God. Isn't it? He does not love wickedness. He loves righteousness. See, he's not like us. We adore him by describing him. Just describing him. His attributes. His quality. His goodness. Describing and knowing who he is, is to know that he is wonderful. Evil is something bad and he takes no pleasure in it. He has no pleasure. He has no love. Uh, the older writers would have wrote about what's a kind of a type of well-pleasing love. God has a love, a type of love for every single person that is upon the earth. He brings rain and sunshine as long as they're still breathing on this earth. There's a, a, a grace and a mercy and a love expressed to them. But there's a type of well-pleasing love. A, a delighting love, you could say. That only those who are in Christ... God has for them. See what it even says here in the second half of verse 5. You hate all workers of iniquity. Verse 6, the second half of verse 6. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. We see, we see verses, don't we? The Lord sends rain and sunshine. The Lord talks about loving your enemy. But this is a different type of love and a different type of hatred. The Lord abhors. The Lord, I think we've gotten into this language for a long time of God hates the sin but loves the sinner. 
and we've made a horrendous blunder with that phrase. The Lord pours out his wrath upon sinner and sin for all eternity. It is his holy anger. The Lord has a love for those still on this earth, but that love will one day be cut off, that mercy, if they go into eternity without Christ. Look at what it says in the scriptures. You hate all workers of iniquity. Who are those who are, have a well-pleasing love, that type of love that is only in Christ? Those who repent and trust Jesus Christ. And this is speaking highly of him. This is adoring him. This is exalting him. This is, see, no element of impurity touches this trice holy God. He is holy, holy, holy. Pure, clean. The boastful shall not stand in your sight, verse 5 says. That you could also translate that the arrogant or the foolish could also be translated as well, shall not stand in your sight. These are noisy, arrogant boasters who, who, who think nothing of speaking against God, but they will not stand in his sight, in his presence. They will be destroyed. God will be victorious. God will be forever clean and pure and righteous in all that he does. And this is what the psalmist does. He He lifts up God. And how does he do that? By describing him as he is. So it's important, dear friends, that we learn more about God as we come before him in prayer. That we learn from the scriptures things about God that it would help our prayer life. So that when we come before him, as we're going to look later on, we don't just come with, as a friend of mine once put it, a shopping list. A shopping list of things that, no, we come in praise, in adoration. So number one, we've looked at adoration. Adoration. Number two now, we're going to look at acceptance. Acceptance. So we can adore him coming into his presence, but we have to ask this question. If he is so pure, if he is so wonderful, how can we sinners come into his presence? How is it possible for us to come into his presence, verse 6, Because it says here, you've destroyed those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, and that is us by nature. Verse 7. Ah, but verse 7 is here. But as for me, I will come into your house. Why? In the multitude of your mercy. In the multitude of your mercy. We can only come by mercy. God takes pity on us and allows us because of Jesus Christ, to come to him in the first place. We've been born in Adam, and that's our problem. And by nature, we are verse 6. But by mercy and grace and kindness of God, we are verse 7. We can come into the presence of God because of the multitude of his mercy. Without Christ, we are still the boastful. We are still the workers of iniquity. But by grace, we are those who can come in the multitude of his mercy. It's, his, his, his mercy, can we measure it? Can we measure the sin we've done against God? The, the sin of infinite value we've done against God and the value of Christ's offering? 
Without Christ, our prayers, any of our prayers, the psalmist's prayers, our prayers, are not acceptable before God. And we were, some of the earlier psalms, we were thinking about how Christ is seen in the psalms. The only way that this is true of us, that we can come before God, is because of Christ. It's only because of Christ. There is hope for the psalmist David because of the greater David who would come. But as for me, verse 7, I would come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. And that's the holy of holies. That is the, the most, the, a place where God's special presence dwells. Now, God is everywhere, omnipresent. But there's a special way he dwells in his house. There's a special place he dwelt in the holy of holies in the Old Testament. There's a special place he dwells among his people here this evening, in and amongst us. And it's a blessing for his people to be in and amongst God. Why? Why is this special privilege for us? It says Romans 9 verse 16, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's not of our will. It's of God's mercy. He allows us to come. He chooses us. He enables us to come. He, he opens our eyes. And then when we see, it's kind of, I heard it being described once as you don't have to, when, when God opens the eyes of a sinner, you don't have to make him love Christ. It's like the person who's been given an eye, his eyesight for the first time sees the sunset. No one has to convince him of the beauty of the sunset. Christ is glorious. And when we see the beauty of the sunset and the glory of that, we do not wish to be in darkness again. And that's repentance. We flee to that which is pleasing before us because of what God has done. And because we have fled from darkness to light, we have been embraced and accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 6 says this. Ephesians 1 chapter 3 to 6 or verses 3 to 6 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved, accepted in Christ. This is why we can come. This is why the psalmist can write, but as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. And why has he been able to come into the house of God? Because he's been accepted. He's been accepted. And that mercy is only in that beloved one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. It says in the second half of verse 7, in fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Now this is not a fear where we're walking on eggshells and we're terrified, but this is a fear that knows how the power and the glory of God, we rejoice and yet we tremble in his presence at the same time. It says in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The beginning of knowledge. 
And what does that imply? Without the fear of the Lord, we do not have wisdom. We do not have the knowledge of God. Second half of verse 7 in Proverbs 1.7, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. John 4, 23 and 24, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The fear of the Lord. You see, it says in verse seven, once again, in fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. I will worship toward where your blessed presence is. I will worship toward you. Because why? The hour is coming when the true worshippers of God and those true worshippers will have the fear of the Lord. They will be those who are accepted in the beloved, those who are accepted into the house of Almighty God. Chosen, blessed, without blame, washed, clean, Paul would write to the, to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, such were some of you, but you have been washed, you've been sanctified. Because you're viewed differently now, because you're in Christ. Your prayers are accepted if you find God's will acceptable for you. You see, the psalmist finds God's will a delight. And if you find God's will a delight... Well, the Lord has changed you. And you are accepted in his presence. Not because you're perfect, you're not. But there's a sign that God has changed you. Because if God hadn't changed you, you wouldn't find his will pleasing. If you find God's will a delight, then God delights in your prayers. They're acceptable before God. This acceptance is not based on our performance. We can have bad days and we can have good days in the Lord. But if we, when we do sin, it grieves us and we wish to be with God again. If we wish to repent, that's a good sign that the Lord has changed us. That he has, that the Lord Jesus Christ has clothed us with special white robes before the throne of heaven. It says in Revelation 7 verses 9 to 10, After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're clothed with white robes, clean, spotless. No longer are robes small, damaged, filthy garments like we once had. No, they're washed, they're clean, and they're pleasing before God because of Christ. How do you know? In verse 3 of this psalm, it tells us, my voice you will hear in the morning. In the morning I will direct it to you. And I will look up with the eye of faith. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him alone. In him alone. We need to be part of that people in Christ Jesus. Or we will not be accepted. Verse 9. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. This is the other group. 
These were not accepted before him, for there's no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. And that brings us to our final point as we look at these other people and the difficulties godly people will face in this world as we pray out godly prayers. The final point is assistance. Assistance. So we've looked at adoration. Number two, acceptance. And number three, assistance. Godly prayer sees that we need help. Now, I know I said earlier we don't want to come with a shopping list and we don't want to come just, you know, please help me with this, 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 and we don't really adore him and honor him. However, at the same time, the godly man sees his need. He sees he is weak. He sees he is frail. He sees he is but dust. And he sees he needs divine help. So while we don't just go with the shopping list, we also come seeking help with our daily needs, whatever those needs are. It may be praying for physical healing for some neighbor, and it may be for something else. But you'll see as well in many of the Psalms, the psalmist had enemies. The psalmist had enemies. Why did he have enemies? Because he followed God. He followed God. Verse 8 says this, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. Make your way, not my way, your way straight before my face. We will have enemies if we follow God. Now, you may have enemies even if you don't follow God, but I'll guarantee you this. If you follow God, you will have enemies. You will have people who do not wish for you to follow that way. Otherwise, the scripture does not teach or show normal life. It does. The most holy man to ever walk upon the face of the earth was killed. And nailed to a Roman cross by a religious and self-righteous generation. Seriously. It's shocking. They thought they were good. They thought they were great. And when the true Messiah came, they would rather release Barabbas. What does that say of human nature? It says in Luke Chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. But woe unto you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you, laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. The false prophets in Jeremiah's day were seeking the approval of men. The false prophets in Jesus' day were seeking the approval of men. Jesus said things and it turned many against him. It did. Most people turned against him. There was a warning, if all men speak well of you. It's not that we're seeking to be contentious or seeking to have enemies. There are people like that as well. But... If all men speak well of you, it can be often because you have no principles. You have no place that you will say, here is the hill I'm willing to die on. Here is where what we believe. But if you're blown around with every wind of doctrine, with every opinion, you're seeking the approval of men and not the approval of God. The Christian must first think about pleasing God. Not 
thinking about pleasing fallen men. David, as, as surely as David had enemies, we will have enemies too if we're living godly in this world. Verse 10, pronounce them guilty, the psalmist writes. Let them fall by their own counsel. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. Now what does David want when he's praying? He's, he's seeking this help from Almighty God. I think sometimes you can read the Psalms and think he's just seeking for revenge. He just wants them crushed and out of the way. But I think there's more than that. He brings his complaints of his enemies before God. He wishes that the, the attempts to attack the kingdom of God would prove to be futile and would be defeated. Those who wish to attack the kingdom of God. That what they're planning, what they're plotting, what they're trying to do would end in failure. That it would end in failure. No, we pray for the souls of the, those people who plot against us as well. But we also seek what David is really seeking for is an open vindication of the truth. To show that the truth is victorious over evil. Because that's what's going to happen at the end of time. To show that what they're doing openly is wrong. Most of the society won't see that. But to show that it's openly wrong and it's also defeated. And that ultimately those who refuse to repent never it will continue on in, the, in their schemes would see defeat. I think we could think recent, some recent cases of LGBT attempts to get Christian businesses in trouble. You could think of the Ashes Bakery case. Um, and I, I think most of you know this case. They were asked to put a slogan on a cake that would basically be saying uh, a promotion of so-called gay marriage. What do we pray for as Christians? Such attempts to bring down Christians to fail. Now we also pray for those people attempting such things, don't we? But pronounce them guilty. And perhaps in them seeing that they're guilty, the people who attempt such things, that they would also see their need for Christ, you see. In bringing down the attempts of the enemy, and in some ways it's actually a mercy for them. If they continue to think that they're winning the upper hand, it's better to learn in this world that they're guilty than to learn in the world to come. It's all about the truth. It's not about getting petty revenge or anything else like that. It's about, there's a sense in which there's mercy for sinners if they see, they fall to their lowest and they say, I am undone, I need God's help. And that's a wonderful thing to see in this world because if they see it in the world to come it's too late we should pray for those now scheming against Christ's kingdom we should pray for their attempts to fail and be crushed and to be shown openly to be wrong but we also pray for those that their souls that they would no longer be those whom the Lord abhors but be the ones that the Lord takes delight in and be they would no longer be verse 6. They'd be verse 7. That they would also join in with us. And say in the fear of you I will worship toward your holy temple. We hope more people. Even those who scheme against us. And our enemies. Would come to know Christ. We need help. We don't just need help against our enemies. We need 
Some, well, in, in some ways, our enemy can be ourself. We can be our own greatest, our own greatest weakness. Um, we need joy. We need the joy of the Lord, verse 11. But let all those who rejoice, who put their trust in you, let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. See, there's God's help again. His assistance. Let those who love your name be joyful in you. It says in Nehemiah 8 verse 10 about the joy of the Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We're seeking divine help. In seeking joy, we're not just seeking joy to be happy. We're seeking strength to keep going. We're seeking strength Uh, To keep going. We need divine help to keep going on our journey toward our heavenly home. And we're seeking protection. It was one of the accusations Satan said about to God about Job in Job chapter one. That look at him, look at Job. I'm kind of paraphrasing now, but Job only follows you because you put a hedge of protection around him. Remove that hedge of protection, he will curse you to your face. The devil knows that there's a hedge of protection around Job. Do we know there's a hedge of protection around us? There's so many things that could happen to us, isn't there? (laughs) If we see the things, I suppose we'd always say there's, we always know somebody's worse off than ourselves. The Lord is our protector, even in this world, and especially in the world to come. We seek to go to him for assistance and help, for his power, we are weak. Let us never think that we don't need help. All of us need help. All of us need help. We all need help from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we, as we finish off looking at Psalm number 5, Psalm number 5, just leave you with some points. And we think about adoration. As you come before God, think about who is he. Start with your prayers with that. Think about how wonderful he is. Think about how he answers prayer. Exalt him. And in exalting him, it will change your heart. It will change your heart. And then also think about why and how you're acceptable before him. Not because of yourself, but because of Christ. That will change our attitude in prayer. And then when we're there, we need help. We need help. Not just in the big things, but in small things, everything. Because God is in control of everything. We are weak, we are helpless, and the wisest amongst us see this. The wisest amongst us see we are weak. The wisest amongst us do not trust themselves because they see their weakness. They see how small our wisdom is and how great the wisdom of God is and how great his help is. Amen.